Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today, Chris and I are talking to Dr. Matt Sikreski about neurodivergence, personality growth, and giftedness, and how that relates to the theory of positive disintegration. Matt will share his personal stories. We'll be talking about, we'll talk about overexcitabilities and how they connect to other forms of neurodivergence. But importantly, we're going to be talking about multiple perspectives, taking into consideration failure as a form of growth, moving away from the black and white medical model to one of observation and perspective. And also Matt's experience of working as an LGBTQ plus ally. I guess the main takeaway from today's conversation is that more than one thing can be true at any given time and that we live in a world of infinite complexities. Today's conversation is engaging and interesting and I really hope that you get as much out of it as I have. Hello listeners, welcome to Positive Disintegration. I'm Emma Nicholson. I'm Dr. Chris Wells. And Chris, today I'm quite excited because we've got a guest on who's going to talk about, you know, Dabrowski's theory, neurodivergence, but they're also quite an exciting person to listen to. That's right. It's very nice of you to say. I, I, you know, I'm assuming that person gets here later or, 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 is, it, or is it me? It's you. It's you, Dr. Matt. It's you. So for our listeners, our guest today is Matt Zagreski. And Matthew, or Dr. Matt, is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with neurodivergent, gifted 2E, ADHD, autism, those sorts of people. Uh, And he has presented over 200 times all over the country and the world. So the country being America. He is the co-founder and lead clinician at the Neurodiversity Collective. So welcome to the podcast, formerly Matt. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, if my very American accent is not very much giving that away, um, you know, yeah, you know, certainly most of my talks have been here in America, but, you know, my, my primary professional goal is to go to Australia and talk there because I lived there for a while in 2004. So I, if I can ever return back there is that, that is my life goal. So yes, please do. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my everyone always too. says. They say, please come. And I say, great. Who's going to buy my plane ticket? <laughs> I don't even need a place to stay. I've got people, but I just need someone to buy the plane ticket. So I feel the same way. It's my yeah. goal too. And I wish that somebody would buy my ticket so I can go visit Emma. But yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Matt. I have had the pleasure to get to see you speak in person at conferences. And I always look forward to getting to chat with you, even if it's only for a couple of minutes when I see you at, you know, NAGC or wherever. Last year, I got to see you in Wisconsin, which was nice. I finally decided if I'm going to visit Michael every fall in Wisconsin, I might as well present at their conference too while I was there. So that was my thinking around it. It was such a pleasant surprise, right? I mean, I looked up and I'm like, Chris? Like, I didn't expect to see you in Wisconsin of all places, but, you know, I mean, I think that's the best thing about our shared community is that we, everybody is so active that you end up running into, there's always a friendly face, right, wherever you go. And, you know, I mean, I keynoted for Oklahoma last year and, you know, I look up and there's Mark Hess and I was like, Mark, you know, I mean, it was just so pleasant. 
right? So we've got a we've got a good group that we get to share this professional journey with. I feel the same way. It's great. I always kick things off kind of the same way, which is to ask how you first discovered Dabrowski's theory. So please. Yeah. I mean, so I often say that my work with the gifted community is both personal and professional. I was identified gifted in second grade. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD in high school. That clarified many things. But my understanding of gifted was almost solely limited to the intellectual side of it. I figured things out faster than most people. I could bullshit my way through many things, right? Like I was smart, blah, 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 blah. I always did well on standardized tests. But it wasn't until I got to grad school where I really started researching gifted and going deep into it that. I mean, you, you asked my wife, like I, I would be in our little, you know, we had this two bedroom apartment. So we used one as sort of a study and one is our bedroom. And I would come bursting out of the other bedroom, like, babe, you got to read this. And I'd go back in, then burst out, like, babe, you got to read this, right? Because it was me. It was me on these pages. And, you know, a synchrony, holy crap, that was me, right? And sense of justice, holy crap, that was me. And then Dabrowski, I mean, I just never really understood that element of it, right? Like, like these areas of specific sensitivity, right? And, you know, thinking about the overexcitabilities, I mean, you know, because like a lot of neurodivergent people, I've got some sensory stuff. But the thing for me that is just such an area of sensory hypersensitivity is the sound that styrofoam makes, like I'm talking like, it's not like, oh, I'm dis- I'm discomforted by this or, oh gosh, I don't like it. It's like, I literally like, it's like someone's hitting me with a taser, right? Like I lose control of my autonomic nervous system. And, and, you know, so then I said, well, like, I want to learn more about this. So I dug into it and this idea of these systems and these ways of interacting with the world that are sort of a superstructure around neurodivergence, which to me just explains so much of not only how I saw the world, but also increasingly my colleagues, my friends, my clients, you know, and and it becomes this thing where it's so awesome for me to be able to say to a client, like, let me unpack this thing for you because I'm about to share something with you that's going to help you understand why it is that you're experiencing the world in this way. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I have a couple questions about your own personal journey. Um, one of them is that I noticed that when your dad retired recently, that he's a psychologist too. And mm-hmm. so when I saw that, I wondered, like, do you feel like it was like a benefit to you growing up to have a parent who was a clinician in terms of figuring things out about yourself, like also discovering the ADHD, for instance, or... You know, I mean, just what's your take on that? Because it's interesting to me as somebody who does this kind of work and has a kid. Like, what do you think about it? Because sometimes I wonder if my son thinks it's a liability. (laughs) And there are times it definitely felt like that. You know, I mean, there are times where I never got grounded as a kid, largely because like I get many gifted kids. Like I was a rule follower. Right. In, in all the important ways. Right. You know, I was a rule breaker in other ways, but um, but I never got in trouble. We talked about it. And that is as an adult, man, is that a positive skill? 
But as a 16-year-old, you're like, no, either ground me or let me move on with my life. Let's not have a two-hour conversation about why I'm failing AP Chem, right? Because surprise, surprise, I'm not that good at the STEM stuff, right? <laughs> my skills are in the humanities. I like to hang out over there. <laughs> um, safe liberal arts education. Woo! Um, so... But both, so both of my parents are clinical psychologists. Uh, my mom is actually still practicing. And to me, it harkens to a thing I often say in therapy to my clients, which is use your powers for good. You know, I mean, like, listen, you're a smart person. You're a gifted person. You're a twice exceptional person. You have skills that other people cannot even dream of. And it would be very easy to, to weaponize that stuff, to, to manipulate things. And I think all of us probably have done that at one point or another, right? I've tap danced my way out of a few things, but largely we use our powers for good, right? And and that was the primary message I got. Like you're you are intelligent, you're compassionate, you're empathetic, you can see things other people can't see. Use that to lift others up. Don't weaponize it against them. And and that's sort of a like a bedrock thing for me. There are times where it would be very easy to push some psychological buttons, right? But that's something that, you know, those are lines my parents rarely ever crossed, certainly not with me and my, my siblings, but certainly professionally as well. And, you know, and I, and I honor that and I, mo I try to model that in my own life. Interesting. Wow. I didn't realize that your mom was too, also yeah. a psychologist. That's wow. Yeah, wow is the right <laughs> word, Chris. <laughs> it explains a lot, right? I for better or for worse. Um, no, that's cool though. And yeah. your wife is too, right? Mm -hmm. So you guys are like replicating that in your own household. Oh my gosh. My parents met in grad school. My mom's name is Julie. I met my wife in grad school. My wife's name is Julia. I mean, cue the Freud jokes, right? I mean, it's like a little bit too like teed up for you, you know, just but, you know, it's funny um, talking about like sort of the beginning of grad school. So the year I started grad school, 2011, it was a very tough year for me. I lost three grandparents in one year, both my grandfathers and my dad's mom. And while I was close to all three of them, and I'm lucky enough that my mom's mom is still with us, but my, my dad's dad, um, he was, his name is Chester Zakreski. Um, and he was Dean of Students at Ryder University forever. He knows Don, he knew Don Ambrose very well. Uh, I'm sure you know Don. But one of the things that is was so funny to me is my grandfather was notorious. Um, he's a very proud Polish American. And he was, you know, he was notorious for you anybody could be on the television. He's Polish. I'm like, Grandpa, that is a that is a Caribbean American. I don't think there's any Polish in that gentleman's sorry. And he's like, no, 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 you know, you know, I mean, the Poles were in the Caribbean, but you know, so coming across Dabrowski, you know, who is very Polish, right? I'm like, ah, oh, Pop, you would, you would have loved this, right? This, it's a very, it was a very cool sort of a generational moment for me, because you know, I mean, like my last name is Zakreski, which is an Americanized version of Jashevsky, which was the original name. But there's a strong Polish heritage there. So to see somebody, you know, with that heritage contributing so so greatly to the thing that matters most to me, I mean, that is that's just very cool, right? It's you know, it's a it's sort of a it twings some pretty deep emotional chords. Thinking about you 
also as 2E with ADHD because, so for me, when I discovered overexcitabilities and the gifted literature, and I realized that people were saying that ADHD was something separate from overexcitability. And so I started thinking like, oh, well, maybe that's true. You know, maybe that all of this is just from my giftedness and mm-hmm. I'm not really an ADHDer. And so I went down a serious rabbit hole to figure this out for myself, including like, you know, studying Polish and translating his early work with Michael to figure it out. But ultimately, I would say that I, and of course, you know, we talk about this often in the podcast, so our listeners won't be surprised. I mean, yeah, we know that it's not different, that overexcitability is is there for ADHD too. It's there for autism. It's there for all of these kinds of neurodivergence. At least that's what I see, and mm-hmm. I'm not alone in this. What do you think? Did you go through this too, where you discovered this and had like some doubts about maybe it's really my giftedness or knowing that it's not some different physiology that's mm-hmm. overexcitability compared to like the hyperactivity of ADHD, for instance. I mean, this is a big deal. This is, I would argue, a big part of why people were calling the theory pseudoscience is because, right. you know, people were trying to say it was something different. But I just wonder on your journey, was that something that you saw as like an obstacle to understanding or did that just intuitively make sense to you that this was the same phenomenon that people were saying this, but that didn't really resonate with you? I just thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking the most important question, right? I mean, because those of us who rabbit hole as we are all guilty of rabbit holing, it's the ideas. Is there an answer? Is there, is there some bottom level at which I can ground myself? Right. And, you know, I'm a neuroscience guy, right? I'm a brain nerd. I can, I can go to chapter and verse and brain. I mean, certainly we have colleagues who can do it better, but I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty up there. And I look at the brain stuff and I look at the fMRI studies and then I read Dabrowski and I think about that. And then I look at the research on ADHD and what we know about it now in 2023, as opposed to 30 years ago when I was a kid growing up in, you know, the New Jersey suburbs. And I think the answer, and, and while it's a bit of a cop-out, is all of the above, right? Because there are elements that are captured by each individual thing. And I think it really is a marriage. I mean, like the fundamental question of psychology is nature or nurture. What Am I a psychologist because my parents are both psychologists? Or am I a psychologist because my parents modeled for me compassion, empathy, and, and frankly, how to make a good living out of it? And then, you know, and the answer is both and, and a million other things. What I always tell my clients is I want you to anchor in the thing that gives you structure, a thing that makes sense. That's something that you can sink your teeth into. Right. And I think that allows us a lot more autonomy within the the pathway to self-discovery. Right. If I say, you know, Chris, you've got ADHD. That's the end of the story. I'm robbing you of the ability to put your own spin on it, to, to color in those lines, to make it more three-dimensional through your own brilliance and your own style of research. I mean, you know, if, if there are things that illuminate that for you, I want you to be able to have them. Now I'm going to push back on pieces of it that are, that have been sort of disproven, right? But, you know, things that are 
that are supported by the literature, things that are that we can meaningfully engage with, I think can and even should be a part of that story. Can I just say I'm over here cheering with my mute button on? (laughs) (laughs) And maybe it's because I don't come from that academic background where, you know, people are being guided by the DSM, (laughs) whatever it is. But I... I'm a person because of my career background is that every person's perspective or new bit of data that you get adds to the body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there's not this, this is right, this is wrong. And the, the continual trying to just cram things into one box and say, it is this or it is this. It's black, it's white. It's Where's the Venn diagram thinking? Yeah. Where's the thinking of multiple perspective, perspectives on a thing? And that has always boggled me about this theory. It's like, why can't you're like the little girl in the taco ad going, why not both? (laughs) Why can't we have more than one thing? Why can't we have multiple perspectives on things that maybe overlap and shine different lights? And as you said, whatever works for people and gives them meaning. So I'm really glad that you said that because I'm, I'm a person who thinks in analogies. And for me, it's all about how one thing connects to another thing. And so that continual, it's either ADHD or it's overexcitability or it's something else, like that just boggles my mind. And I appreciate you sharing that, right? Because that, not only are we having the honor of hearing from the voice behind the curtain, right? I mean, like, you know, this is like in America's Got Talent. And I'm sure there's an Australian version of this, right? Where like Terry Crews comes out from the United States, like, no, 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 this was really great. I'm going to hit the golden buzzer, right? Like we did so good. Emma had to say something. Um, But I mean, that's exactly it, right? Like I can't disentangle the pieces of where you grew up and how you were raised, knowing very little about you to your journey of neurodivergence any more so than I can disentangle being a white cisgender heterosexual male grew up in in the new jersey suburbs right there's there is something about it that is inherent and also not the whole story right and i think that you know as everybody builds their castles and draws their lines in the sand i've always been more along the lines of what can i gain and gather from others right my favorite part of going to a conference is talking to people who do things in ways that I don't do them and see the world in ways I don't see the world, especially speaking to teachers, right? As I often joke, like I'm not a teacher. You put me in a fourth grade classroom, I would run screaming out of there. I'm like, you know, that's not, that's not my thing. So when I go to a session with a really good teacher and we're blessed to know a lot of them, I, I just like, I walk out of there with a notebook full of ideas, right? In a way that, you know, in, enhances not only my interventions with my child clients, but also enhances my ability to talk to teachers and say, listen, you have an impossible job. My job is to try to make your impossible job a little bit less impossible based on good pedagogy, good praxis, good data, good science, right? We're no one here is against each other, right? We all have to be on the same team. I think a lot of times we let some pretty, I don't have a better word than silly. Right, you know, some silly stuff get in the way, and you know, if there's anything that bums me out, it's that. I hear you. I mean, I really do my best to stay out of like personality conflicts and issues, and do what you said, like just to try to take the best out of 
every situation and to hear people out, even when they don't agree with me. And you're so right too, by the way, I just want to validate that I feel the same way when I'm presenting and I'm always like, I'm not a teacher. I don't think I could be a teacher. Yeah, It would kill me. But <laughs> I so appreciate getting to learn from good teachers, great teachers, and to hear what they have to say. I mean, it's it's been so interesting to to become a part of a field that I never expected to or planned to because I didn't go into education. So even though I, like I studied psychology in like education in psychology, but I didn't expect gifted ed like that just wasn't where I thought I would end up. But I mean, here we are. And well, so let's talk about Dabrowski's theory in the yeah. gifted, you know, tell us about your work and how the theory uh, informs your practice if you don't mind. One of the things that I often return to, right, is this idea that, you know, so if we think about positive disintegration, you know, the idea is that anxiety is necessary for growth, right? And, and obviously, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm distilling, but although if we were going to get into the weeds, we'd be, <laughs> it would be a nine part podcast series. I'll, I'll take a quick step to the side. So I grew up in a very wealthy area, right? And listen, my family was solidly upper middle class. So I, you know, we, we didn't have vacation homes. We also got to take a vacation every year. So we're so, you know, but I had, I had friends and colleagues and schoolmates who, you know, I mean, owned boats and helicopters and, you know, that sort of thing. But it was amazing to me that the number one thing that seemed to separate success from not success was the ability of somebody to face a challenge head on, navigate the anxiety and stress that comes with a challenge from a, you know, now what we would call like a growth mindset or grit, right? But from, but this idea of like standing on your own two feet, because it is very easy to hire a tutor. It is very easy to donate a library to a college to make sure you get in there, which is the thing that actually happened in my graduating class. And that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, that's, you are robbing the person of the power of those life lessons. From a psychological perspective, if you sprint to the aid of someone every time they fall, the thing it teaches them is that, that they're fragile. And the best thing you can do for somebody is that, you know, let's mirror this with attachment language. So, you know, it's that secure attachment is I'm here, you can see me. And I'm, I'm telling you based on my location, you're okay. Right? I'm, I am near enough to you that you're fine. I'm not hovering on you. I'm also not three towns over, right? I'm close enough. And I think Dabrowski would have appreciated that because there's this idea here that like, we are shaped by the idea of not only what happens to us, but how we respond to it. And that can feel very existential, of course. But I also think it's this idea of personality as an ongoing, developing, living thing. You know, I, I respond to challenges now as a parent, much different than I did 10 years ago, when, you know, I was starting grad school and was living with my then girlfriend, now wife. Right. I mean, A, because the challenges that I'm faced with are different. B, because my strengths and weaknesses and resiliency levels are different. Right. I am not the same person now 
and frankly, nor should I be, right? It's sort of silly to see yourself that way. So, you know, seeing yourself as a summation of navigating infinite life challenges and the tools and resources that you bring to bear, I think is a really dynamic way of seeing the person as a ongoing process. That resonates very highly for me because I come from a background where we do agile change management and it's all about roll something out, test it, learn from the failures, iterate, do it. And you roll your first iteration out, assuming it's going to fail. Yeah. Um, and I was actually watching some of your your talks on, you know, how we approach failure. failure. <laughs> and what resonated for me before when you were talking about failing chemistry, I think there's this little paradox, particularly for gifted kids, is when you fail at something, it's framed as the worst possible thing to happen. So you don't learn that resilience because I had a similar experience in high school where I was failing math because my teacher seemed to speak an entirely different language than I did and I, I just couldn't learn from her in the way that she was teaching. But I always got that why are you failing? And my dad, if I took a, a test to him and it was 96%, what happened to the other 4%? Yes. It's failure. You know, if you fail your high school certificate, that's it. You failed your life. There's no other options where plenty of people kind of work through extra education and get there. And the way that that perfectionism sits sometimes on people frames their view of failure as this horrific thing that you can't recover from um, and for me, that was one of the brilliant things in the theory was that, no, your entire personality is a cycle of carrots and sticks and, you know, big emotions that are hard to deal with that you they may be uncomfortable, but they're going to teach you and you can learn from that. And everything that goes wrong in your life can be a lesson to help you in that continuous improvement cycle. You know, and the only tweak I would make there, right, because, that, you know, you can hear that lang- that gifted kid language, right? Continuous improvement. I like the idea of continuous development, right? Because improvement has a directionality to it. I, you know, I was complaining about this to my wife the other day. Like, I was like, I feel like I'm much less resilient now than I was earlier in my life. She's like, well, we haven't slept in six years. You know, like our children never stop, you know, and and she's like, this isn't criticism. It's it's reality. Like you are in some ways less resilient because you wake up with less in the tank. But in some ways, you're so much more resilient. I always try and tell my clients, right? It's not about, we, we always want to seek to improve. That is a good thing. It's a life goal, right? But seeing improvement, not as a destination, but as a journey, right? As, as a path towards development, like, you know, I'm never going to be a perfect father. Like I'm never going to be a perfect therapist. Like I'm never going to be a perfect partner or friend or da, 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 Right. But I can always take the information I have at my disposal and use it to assess, reevaluate, develop, respond in an informed way. Right. And I think that's really where I've seen my most growth is not saying like, well, this is the right way I must find a way to do it, but it's what tools, what what is this situation telling me and what is this situation trying to teach me? Because the more I can say in that space, I find the more grounded and flexible 
I am and become at the same time. I love what your wife said about the fact that you haven't slept for six years. I mean, that is so true. When you have young kids, right. it's a whole different experience of life. <laughs> it's I had a really hard time adapting to that personally. Yeah. I'm grateful that my kid is 17 now and sleeps more than I do. So, oh, I mean, things yeah. get better. Someday, someday, I'm just <laughs> someday it's going to happen, you know, and it's really, I mean, there's this idea, right, about, you know, layering these ideas of positive disintegration into parenting, right, which is, once again, a whole other separate podcast, but like, the idea is that like, people are like, enjoy this time, it doesn't last forever, there's such little blessings. Yes, all those things are true. And there are also times where I would pay someone $100,000 to go to a restaurant and have a cheeseburger for an hour by myself. <laughs> and no one is screaming at me or asking me for anything. And I don't have to watch Paw Patrol anymore. I mean, like, and that's the thing. Both of those things can be true. We don't have to live in a world of black and white. We can live in a world of unique and infinite complexities. And I think the more we as people not only respond to that, but like embrace that, I mean, goodness me, like that is just, you know, whatever path towards improvement exists, I think it goes through there. I agree. I think that that kind of like dialectical thinking and holding up these, you know, different, these differing points of view that yet are both true is so important. And when I talk about the theory, I find myself often wanting to do it in different ways than it has been so far. Like for yeah. instance, I'll give you an example. I mean, we rarely on this podcast talk about the levels in the way that people right. always have with this theory where they're like, well, there's these five levels and they talk about it as if it's some kind of progression. And I never do that because I don't think it makes sense to think of development as linear or like you're leveling up, you know, I mean, it just, it just, shouldn't be seen that way. In my opinion, I think that they're better seen as different types of development that people experience and that there's huge overlap between them and that there's different ways to talk about it. And so I do feel like there's so much value in stretching ourselves and not like getting black and white or letting ourselves be like boxed in, in these ways. And so you know, it's been a lot of fun to have the podcast and to talk with people like you and our other guests and just to hear from all of these different perspectives that, especially though, when people use the theory in their work. Like I know for me, I only work with adults, you know, and most people come to me because they maybe know a little bit about my story of coming from a place where I thought I was mentally ill and rethinking that. And so I get a lot of clients or people who want to be clients who have a similar experience. But I feel like I'm reinventing the wheel in some ways with each person okay. because we all have such different stories and come from such different places and arrived at this place where we learned about the theory after going through like such vastly different, I don't know, circumstances in our lives that it's like, it doesn't matter where we came from, like understanding that, like just these basic things about development and that it's not something wrong with you, that you're not broken, that it's not a mental illness that you have to look at as like something you're 
going to have to be on medication for the rest of your life. Or, you know, I think that there's so much messaging from the medical model that is harmful to people. I know that personally, I was basically trained in my 20s in the 90s. Well, you have bipolar disorder, you're going to have to take medication for the rest of your life. And so that was like burned into my brain that I was going to have to take medication for the rest of my life. Well, then when I was like 41, I discovered this theory and now it's been years since I've taken medication. I learned that bipolar was a misdiagnosis for me. Right. Like, you know, but so people who come to me, you know, who knows what their stories are. Sometimes they're similar. Sometimes they're not. But like the ability to hold up, this can be true and this can be true. And they don't seem related or similar is really powerful. And like, I don't know, I'm glad that it came up in this episode because I'm just realizing that we haven't had this particular kind of conversation yet. <laughs> well, and there, I mean, there's so many among us who have been misdiagnosed and struggled with diagnosis. And, and until we get to a place where I can snap a picture of your brain and be like, ah, look, there's your overexcitability. There it is. I can see it in your, you know, medial prefrontal cortex, right? It's not, a th- you know, there's going to be an element of opinion there's going to be an, an element of what stance you're coming at this from. You know, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I'm not always right either. I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit it, you know. And I tell parents all the time, it's like, we are in some really thorny stuff here, right? Because if I have a kid who tests negative on all the tests of dyslexia, but they're also not reading, and also their ADHD scores come back normal, but we know they're not reading. What is that? Right. I mean, we can say it is probably like a stealth dyslexia thing, right? Because we're figuring out the pieces around it. But there's no test for that. There's no diagnosis for that. And that's why I think us moving out of the medical model into really more reporting what we see is, is going to benefit the broader field of mental health so much more because you know, for every case that is a slam dunk, definitely textbook, there's 10 cases somewhere in those shades of gray, right? And if we're not helping people disintegrate in the most positive way, if there isn't a directionality for that, right? If we're not putting that in context, because, you know, we, you know, we talk about this all the time and like, I mean, Brian Housen and Andy McNair, and I mean, we could name drop a lot of million people, but this idea of the productive struggle, Right. School makes kids struggle, but if they're not doing so productively, then we're burning them out. We're not helping them grow. And I think that, so things like Dabrowski provide that necessary context to redirect the struggle in positive direction because otherwise, right, it is, it's just, it's all churn and burn. It's not growth. And that to me is, is borderline malpractice, honestly. Right. And I can hear those old school teachers who are like, oh, you know, I mean, working hard, never hurt anybody. We're not saying that, but we're saying if we want to optimize the people we are serving, be they children, teens, adults, elderly, whatever, the struggle's got to be productive and it's got to have a direction. Right. And that's where getting to know somebody and really assessing them. I think holds a lot of weight because otherwise, gosh, it's just working hard for hard work's sake. And that's where, I think that's where you lose a lot of people. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I mean, I, I agree. 
And now I'm going to shift us, if you don't mind, because one thing that I really want to capture while we have you is that you're such a strong ally to the LGBTQ plus gifted community. And I want to talk to you about that a little. What made you take an interest in like talking about sex ed or these LGBTQ plus issues? You know, I know that we participated together with the G word during GTN awareness week last week, where you, I mean, last year where you did like a presentation before I was on a panel and it made me wonder, you know, how you got into that, like talking about sex ed as something to present on, but also what, I mean, what led you to choose to be like such a solid ally to this community? It means the world to me that people see that and respond in that way. I mean, it's, you know, it's fundamental sort of to how I like to see the world and frankly, how I like to be seen by the world. Um, So, you know, the sex ed piece, right? Before I knew the language of overexcitabilities and asynchronous development, I did not know why in middle school, everybody else was dating. I was like, that I want to play Legos and Legos are great. And why is everybody holding hands? I don't want to hold hands, but of course, without context, right? You're like, you immediately assume something's wrong with you, right? I, you know, in the absence of information, we create our own narratives and those narratives tend to be catastrophic. But then, you know, you go to gifted kids summer camp. I was a CTY kid. And, you know, I mean, it was the summer between eighth and ninth grade where all of a sudden it's like, and everything clicked. It's like, oh, that's what that is. Oh, right. It's arousal and attraction and and flirting and and there's a whole dance to this and and you know you feel like you're trying to speed run a level because no one i didn't figure that stuff out and lord knows i didn't get enough sex ed to help me understand it but then also that overexcitability piece of just like being absolutely crushed by multiple waves of oe right the imaginational the sensory the emotional right like it was like once puberty hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks, right? And I just remember feeling like I was coming out of my skin. Like, what is this feeling, right? And so, you know, you try to be the adult that you wish you had as a kid for other kids, right? So I try to be that adult and I bring sex into the space. And, I, and you're like, listen, I want you to ask me these questions, right? I want you to talk about this stuff. And you know, because every time you can have a conversation like that, you normalize it. Now, as a, you know, cishet male, it's not always super comfortable for me to talk about periods, right? Not my favorite thing, but I'll tell you this, I want, I, I will welcome those questions and those topics because if it impacts my client, it impacts their life. Therefore, it's a thing we can talk about, right? There's no shame and there should be no shame attached to that stuff that body awareness stuff then goes directly, I think, into sex and sexuality and who you want to be with, take your clothes off with, all that fun stuff. And to me, this it swings directly to, you know, being in high school and going from someone who had played sports my whole life in that hyper-masculine environment to being introduced to the theater arts, right? And being a musical theater kid almost immediately, right? Like I'd gone from nothing, zero to 60. And meeting my first gay, openly gay classmates and castmates and thinking to myself, 
well, this is just fine, isn't it? Right? I mean, the, cool. You know, you like dudes. Good for you. I, you know, and then having that position of like sort of positive neutrality crystallize into something more fierce when you're walking the halls and you hear the F word. Like, I distinctly remember sophomore year of high school. I was dating a girl from a rival high school and somebody found out about like, dude, that's so gay. And I remember like, like seething with rage, not because like, whatever, I didn't care what this guy thought at all, but like, but it's just like, that's so stupid. Like if, if nothing else, use a, use the proper word. I feel like uh, Mike Wazowski in Monsters Inc. Like, first off, it's Cretan, not Cretan. If you're going to threaten me, threaten me properly. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, how are we allowing this language to just be out there? So I started pushing back on stuff like that. And, you know, the more time I spent in the theater, the more time I spent around the LGBTQ plus community and the more time I, you know, got to be around those kids and be around those other professionals and be somebody who people come out to and share things with. And, and I mean, of all the responsibilities that hang heavy on my head in my job, that's near the top of them because it's like, that is an honor and a privilege that I take very seriously, you know, and, you know, Chris, you've heard me say this before, but you know, if anyone hasn't, like no one is more privileged than me, right? I'm a straight, cisgender, heterosexual, white male with a doctorate. I mean, for good, like, and I have no visible deformities. I, I'm crushing it, right? I'm the ca- king of privilege mountain. And and I think if you've got that, it is inherent on you to build a bigger table, not a higher fence. I strive to ge- gatekeep nothing, right? And and I don't always succeed in that. I'll, you know, human, but like, when I can go and speak to a room of educators and say like, listen, I am not of this community. I am a proud ally to this community, but here's what I know and here's what I have seen and here's how it impacts you. I, I hope that, that the uniqueness of that stance gives me a, you know, a, a way to impact the community in a positive way. Right. And, you know, and that's feedback I've gotten from some of our colleagues which is great. It's an honor to hear that stuff. But, you know, I mean, like fundamentally, Chris, to answer your question with a very simple phrase, why am I, not, why am I an ally? Because it's the right goddamn thing to do. Right? <laughs> so, you know, we can dress it up in all the fancy language we want, but at the end of the day, it's the right goddamn thing to do. Well, it's appreciated. And thank you for all of that. I mean, I'm glad that I asked because it's interesting to hear. I mean, I think that I don't know how many other people are like me where, you know, they get exposed to somebody and their work. And for me, I always wonder, like, what's underneath that? Why do you do this? You know, I need to know more. And so I appreciate it. And I do think it's the right thing to do. For me, this connects back to perspectives again, because firstly, um, you're modeling wanting to understand things from other people's perspectives who are not like you. But it also shows that from your king of privilege mountain perspective, you can be an ally and you model that behavior for other people who are up there on the top of the mountain with you. You As you said, this is the right thing to do. So you can have a perspective on people who are not like you. um, That is one of allyship. And that then I think is, 
important from both directions. So the people who you are allying to see that you are able to come to their perspective and the people that share your perspective see you doing that and it may change theirs. If those are cards I hold in my hand that I can play, then you better believe I'm going to play them, you know, and, you know, I have a pretty active social media presence, right? And, you know, every time I post something about the LG that's pro LGBTQ, I lose a few followers, but good riddance to bad rubbish, man. You know, like I'm not, you know, you know what uh, Emily King, who um, is just a wonderful and terrific human being in North Carolina, um, you know, she, she's like bless and block. And I'm like, that's exactly it. Like go with God, my child. Also, you can't follow my page anymore, you know? And it's a thing because I want, how could you possibly heal or grow or engage in the world if you have to hold back a fundamental piece of who you are? And I just, that it boggles my mind, right? And that's why, you know, and I think for a lot of neurodivergence, Owning one's neurodivergence is akin to the coming out process, right? I mean, you know, because there are some stigma stigmas that exist there and some levels of not safety. It's it's certainly not the same thing, right? But there's an element of like, who can I share this with? How much is this going to impact my education, my employment, my relationships, my medical care, right? My career options. You know, I have kids who are like, you can't put ADHD on my records because I want to join the military someday. You know, and and like that's do you think about what an incredible piece of privilege that is to to a not have to worry about something like that, but also to, to you know, to say like, hey, yeah, I've got you. We've got to be able to make more spaces open for people to come as they are. And then, you know, and then what ends up happening is that everybody wins. If you let the autistic worker stim at their desk, they they win and they become better employees, which means the company wins. If you let the kid in middle school be bisexual and date whoever the heck they want to date, then that kid is happier and feels safer and they're a better student and a better friend and a better citizen. Like there are just no downsides to letting people be their most authentic selves you know, and get the support and accommodations that are that are required and necessary to facilitate that growth. Ooh, well said. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll do it again. <laughs> One of the things, Matt, that you do that I really like, um, and I saw your cringe presentation um, where you presented the genderbred person, is that you recognize those layers of complexity to this as well. So it's not even, you know, you fit in the cookie cutter, uh, you know, LGBT community, boop, you must fit this stereotype. You recognize there's so many layers to a person's identity. And you know, when you're talking about that authenticity, what that looks like for one person might be highly different. So you bring in all the aspects of your know, sexuality and romantic attraction and, you know, and then marry that up with asynchronous development. Um, so I love that you're saying that what is truly authentic for one person that maybe identifies as part of that community is going to look completely different to someone else's authentic self within that community. So I love that you're presenting that authenticity is truly something different for each unique individual and is going to have different implications. 
and once again, thank you for sharing that. It's, you know, I think that, you know, the psychology word for that is conceptualization, right? Like how do we conceptualize this person's version of that story? But I think the best word that I have these days is intersectionality, right? I mean, we have to see all the moving parts and, and know that there are some known unknowns. There are elements of this that we, that we don't know yet and we may never know, right? I've got a guy I worked with for many years. He just recently went off my service. Turns out he was allergic to soy. You know, I mean, this is not a thing he got checked out. I've known him for professionally for eight years. Just got diagnosed with a soy allergy and it explains so many things. There's a piece that I just, we never saw, right? It's a blind spot for me. And, you know, it's great though. And I mean, like, and the amount his life improved with that piece of information was like, what? But it's also to get back to this idea of all these different ways of living this life and how authenticity looks different for every person. I think this is important for the three E community, right? So we've got our neurodivergence and the high rates of LGBTQ plus within that community, because people in the neurodivergent community can be not all, but can be rigid thinkers. We tend to be a little bit black and white, right? So, and, and I'll say to kids like, listen, I know you're a staunch ally and I know that you are, you will show up for these people. I also want to tell you that their journey or their manifestation of this is going to probably look different than it is in your head, right? And that doesn't make it wrong. For a kid to be trans doesn't mean they need to transition, right? This is a common thing that I deal with with my clients. You're that by saying that you are and whatever that looks like for you will evolve and change. But there, but like, some very helpful other neurodivergent kids are like, no, 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 no. You got to transition. You got to have a new name. We'll get you new clothes. These things are really important because that's what tra- that's what being trans is. And it's like, well, but 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 it isn't. You're not wrong in the sense of that's what some people's journeys look like, right? But you don't have to take meds to have ADHD. You don't have to struggle to make eye contact to be autistic. I have dyslexic kids I work with who can read comic books just fine. It's the dense text in textbooks and novels that they struggle with, right? And this is like, so you would always, all three of those examples fly in the face of what we commonly assume around these populations, which is why the nuance and individuality of it is got to be what drives the bus. And then that's why we need allies like all the three of us and the wonderful people who listen to this podcast to show up and say, here's what we know, here's what you think you know, and here's what you need to know. Because the way that last piece comes in, that's what colors in the line, that's what makes it real. And then the best interventions and support flow from being real or being authentic. That was something that took a while for me to understand, I think, with overexcitabilities. Because I suppose my exposure to the LGBT community was probably more long lasting through my life. Um, But when I came to overexcitabilities and understanding that about myself, it wasn't until I started interacting with other people uh, in our group on on Facebook and online that it really sunk into me that everybody's experience of overexcitability is going to be completely different. You know, there's five areas whether or not you have all five, how deeply you have them, and then how that 
manifests in your your daily experience is going to look completely different for everybody so just because one person says oh i'm also overexcitable doesn't mean that you know what their experience is going to look like i mean the initial reaction is oh i found a kindred spirit but it's not kind of always the case because what they're going through might look different like even if you look at you know sensory overexcitability maybe what occurs in their life is completely different to what occurs in your life so yeah yeah, you're completely right that I, i i mean i think part of what wants us to put things in those boxes is because we want to find same as me. We want to make that connection, but we can still make that connection without assuming that someone's experience of either being trans or you being overexcitable or gifted or ADHD, whatever it is that they're going through, it doesn't have to look the same as yours. It can be different, but you can still connect. That's right. I love it. I mean, and connection is connection is such an interesting thing for this community because we crave authenticity and we crave deepness and realness, right? Because gosh, right? Like I've got my phone right here. I can got probably like 19 social media notifications and tweets and messages and all that stuff. And like, it scratches an itch, but you know, part of the reason I love conferences so much is it feels like gifted camp. Right. I mean, it's that, you know, you have a 15 minute conversation with somebody in line to get coffee. And by the end of that 15 minute conversation, you're like, we covered Descartes, why I went to college, what we think about the local traffic scenes. And also a, you know, like, did you read that this obscure article in that obscure journal? Oh, by the way, have a nice conference. Right. Like that was a 15 minute thing. Like that is a, you know, that's like a deep soul moment. And I think that when you have those opportunities to connect with people, we teach by doing, we teach by saying, and we teach by being, right? And I think that, you know, no, very few people want to be lectured at, but, you know, if you can share a a moment of professional bonding, and it's like, yeah, Dabrowski informs that for me. Somebody might say back to you like, oh, you know, I've never really gotten into that. That's fine. I don't, I don't need you to be on board with that, right? I mean, I don't want you to blow me out of the water for thinking about it any more than I'll laugh you throw my hot cup of coffee in your face for disagreeing with me. Because the, the aim of any discussion should be progress, not victory, right? I don't, I don't want to win, right? I'm not here to win. I, we, I, I want us all to evolve and develop, right? And there are times that Dabrowski is the right way to think about it in my perspective. And there are times where I thought Dabrowski and turns out I wasn't right. And you know what? There are people who are a little bit more orthodox than me who would say, no, there's a Dabrowski way to think about it. Cool. Right. I, I will cede to your expertise. There are also times where I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm still going to go this direction. As long as we are willing to understand that the inherent complexity of this stuff precludes a lot of easy solutions, then it naturally inherent, you know, it it incentivizes us to be curious and collaborative, not caustic and combative. And that's where a lot of my arguments with school boards are, where I'm like, I don't understand why you are insisting on seeing it this way. 
because now I'm going to be combative and I don't want to be, but if that's the way I got to be to help this kid get what they need, you better believe I'm going to come in, you know, you know, with, with a hammer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I'm much better with kindness, but it doesn't mean I can't bring my angry voice if I have to. <laughs> Kids at the uh, school used to work that work. I used to call it the Dr. Matt thunder voice. They're like, you don't want to hear the thunder voice. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't want to hear the thunder voice, right? But I will use it if I have to. I'm very nice. I promise. <laughs> I can tell. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I just want to say that, you know, we had to put this recording off for like five months because I couldn't deal with it when we were originally scheduled. And I really appreciate your patience and letting us get to the point where we're ready to record with people again. And it's been wonderful having you. And I knew that we would enjoy this conversation with you. And I know that I have, and mm. hopefully you did too, Emma. Well, and hopefully you did too, Matt. Absolutely. Oh, I definitely did. I mean, you know, and you're worth waiting for. Well, we appreciate it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think that things were all going to fall apart in the spring, but they kind of did. <laughs> so they're better now. And you and I both know that happens sometimes, right? I mean, it's, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, boy, I sure hope that, uh, that, that this thing falls apart today and makes my life harder. So, you know, I just, I'm glad things are better now. And this was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, if you guys would like to have me back, I'd love to come back sometime. I'm sure that we will invite you back sometime. We absolutely will. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you joining us too. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Podcast World. Um, Hope you enjoyed. um, And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Continue your path to authenticity through the links in the show notes. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter for stacks of cool things delivered straight to your inbox. Explore the Dabrowski Center, email us, or join us on social media. And don't forget to show your love by liking, subscribing, grabbing some positive disintegration merch, or leaving us a rating or review on your podcast platform. 